Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 7, verse 44. It says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So Christ came to fulfill the promises that God made to the patriarchs. In John chapter 4, verse 22, Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews or from the Jews. So you know that Christianity is not some new religion that Jesus started. It is the completion of something that the Father initiated long ago. We can trace our salvation all the way back to Abraham. In fact, even before that. So really, the gospel did not begin in a manger in Bethlehem. It began actually before the foundation of the world. But it really got started when God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. We will never fully appreciate the new covenant without a better understanding of the old. We cannot completely comprehend grace without a proper knowledge of the law. We will not see the cross clearly without looking more closely at the sacrifices that the children of Israel were required to make. And by a careful examination of the tabernacle, we can better grasp who Jesus is and what he did for us by his death and resurrection. So in short... We can't succeed. We will never really make it with only half a Bible. Amen. So you, you and I together, this is the, I think the, the third, fourth part of a series, and we're tracing our Jewish roots, if you will. What I'm talking about is going back and understanding, you know, how this all began. And after God led the Israelites out of Egypt, he directed Moses to build a tabernacle. Tabernacle means basically tent. In Acts chapter 7, verse 44, the scripture that I began with, it calls this tabernacle the tent of witness. The tent of witness. In Exodus 25, verse 8, I got a lot of scriptures tonight. I hope you don't mind. Exodus, we are preaching the Bible tonight. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, the Lord said, to Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So the tabernacle was a holy place, you see. It was not built for common or ordinary uses. It was dedicated exclusively for the worship of God. So they couldn't take the tabernacle and say, hey, tonight, is it okay if we just have a picnic, you know, in the tent because it's, it's raining? No, no, this is only for the purpose of God. And God's presence was manifested there. His glory resided in that place. And it's very interesting. God gave to Moses detailed instructions on how to construct the tabernacle. Rather interesting. In fact, there are several chapters um, from Exodus 25 to chapter 31, and then skip over from chapter 36 to verse 40 
It all deals with the design and the construction of the tabernacle along with its furnishings and the different utensils and items and then the, the garments of the priest. So it, and it's very, very detailed, extremely detailed, sometimes you know, a little bit cumbersome to read all of that. And then in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, it says this. They, meaning the priests of the Old Testament, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses, here's the point, for when Moses was about to erect the tent or the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So Moses was admonished to carefully, exactly follow the blueprint which God had laid out for him. We're in the process, my wife and I, of building a new house right now. And so we have an architect. We, you know, you don't just build a house. I guess some people might do that. At one time, years ago, we were thinking of renting a house and we visited several places. And, and we came to one house uh, that's available. And so you open the door and there was like a sitting room. And that's it. And then there was another door. And you opened that door, and there was another room, and that was like, you know, the kitchen. Then, you know, there was another door, and that was like, you know, a, a bedroom. Then there was another door, and then that was, you know, it was like a big shotgun, just like a train, you know, just one room. And I said, this is a very unusual house. Who designed it? And the owner said, I did. And I said, now I understand. <laughs> Needless to say, we didn't take that house. So God laid out the master blueprint, and he said, no, you have to follow this exactly. And evidently, it's interesting, evidently on Mount Sinai, Moses had a vision. He saw in a vision, this is exactly what it's supposed to look like, you see. So the point is, why is this so important? What does it matter? Why go into all of this lengthy, oh, sometimes laborious details? Isn't it enough for God to say, build a tent for me? Wouldn't that be okay? That could be just two verses. What's it all about? The tabernacle is a type. It is a type of something. It actually existed in ancient Israel, but it has a symbolic meaning for us today. It was more than just a religious place of worship. It was a sign that pointed to a better future. It was a shadow, a foreshadowing of the reality that we now have in Christ. In other words, it's not just superfluous, you know, whatever, unnecessary, has no connection with our lives. It does. It does. So Hebrews 8.5, the scripture that I read to you earlier, tells us that the tabernacle of Moses was a model of heaven, and it is also a picture of the Redeemer. Notice this scripture. It's familiar to us. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Woo! I don't know. I think this is one of the most amazing verses in the entire Bible. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Now, the Greek word translated 
dwelt in this verse is the word skenao, skenao. And it's not the usual, typical word for dwelling that's used everywhere else in the Bible or in the New Testament. This word is different. This word means to pitch a tent. To pitch a tent. One translation, the Tree of Life version says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's very obvious what he's talking about. It's not so obvious in English. John is directly comparing Christ with the tabernacle. He is the fulfillment. The tabernacle was a type, and he is the antitype. He is the completion. He is what was being symbolized. Ooh. And the Greek word, I said the word for dwell here is shenao, uh, I'm sorry, skenao, sorry. And it actually, the, it means to pitch a tent. And the word for tent, skene, skene, is direct, directly related to a Hebrew word. I know it's a little technical, but pardon me. Directly related to the Hebrew word, which is pronounced something like shakan. Shakan, Hebrew for tent. And from this word, we get another word, Shekinah. Shekinah. Shekinah is a Hebrew word. It's not found in the Bible, but it's found in the writings of rabbis, ancient, ancient writings from Jewish commentators and things like that. Shekinah is a word that the Jews use to describe the manifested presence of God. Shekinah the glory of God. And if you really want to parse it, it means Yahweh. That's the ah of Shekinah. Yahweh lives in a tent. Woo. Glory to God. Hallelujah. That's why John says, he tabernacled among us for a while and we beheld his glory. Whew. Hallelujah. But then, if you go back, there's so many things we could say, time does not permit, of course, but if you were to go back to Exodus chapter 26, verse 14, in the New King James Version, it says this. This is part of the instructions that God gave Moses. You shall also make a covering of ram's skins, dyed red, dyed red for the tent, and a covering of badger skins above that. So the outer layer of the tabernacle was made of ram's skins. In other words, it was the leather of an adult male lamb. That's what a ram is, which was dyed the color red, which seems kind of strange because on top of that was another layer. So that means you would never even see that layer because it's underneath the outer layer. It's covered by something else. And it says in the New King James, uh, badger skins. And actually, if you check and you study this, it's really not clear what he's talking about. Some translations even say dolphin skins or a sea uh, wolf skins or, 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 or seal skin or something like that. So I'm not really sure what, it, I don't think anybody really knows, but 
Probably it's something that's water resistant, the very outside, you know. And uh, it's, it's, it must be something that can handle the elements. It's something that's very durable and rugged, you see. He tabernacled among us. Jesus was a real man. I don't just mean that he was a human being. That's true, of course, but, but he, he, he was a real man. He was a rugged individual. I don't know if you think, if you really have thought about that. He was a rugged individual. He was a, a carpenter. He's someone who worked with his hands. He was not someone that was raised in a palace in very delicate surroundings, you know, very delicate little person, you know. I was in a Magukshun. I traveled with a team many years ago. And, you know, it's high altitude and it's a bit of adjustment for me. And then, you know, the food and everything like that. And in the car, long drive, I was just like, you know, wilting away. And one of our church members said to me, said, you know, Brother John, you know, you are like the broiler chicken that we buy in the market. That's just like, <laughs> you know, can't handle it. But he said, the rest of us, we are like local chickens, you know. <laughs> so... So Jesus was a local chicken. You know, he was, he, he was a rugged individual. It is estimated, I mean, I don't know how anyone could actually know, but it is estimated that during the three years of his earthly ministry, he walked over 3,000 miles. They just walked. Some people can't even walk, you know, from the, from the police point to church. But he walked 3,000 miles in his, in his ministry. Think about that. And the dull and unimpressive exterior of the tabernacle with badger skin or whatever that is really concealed the fact that this tent contained amazing treasures. No one who casually glanced at the tabernacle could have guessed that inside it not only housed priceless works of craftsmanship, but much more than that, the glory of God. And in the same way, Isaiah 53 verse 2 says of Christ, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Whether you would like to admit it or not, it's very clear that Jesus of Nazareth was not a handsome man. He's not the hero from a Hindi movie. He was not attractive. He was not dressed like a prince. And those who saw him did not realize they were looking at royalty. The king was in their midst, and they didn't know him. But beneath that rugged exterior was actually the Lamb of God, dyed red because his blood ransoms the entire world. And going back to Hebrews, this time chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is to say, through his flesh. He went on to say, let us draw near. So the tabernacle is a type. 
It teaches us something. There's some real reasons why God did it this way. The tabernacle, a tent, was divided into two compartments. The first section was called the holy place, and it contained several pieces of furniture, and there various religious rituals were continually performed. The second section of the tabernacle was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, and it only had one thing inside, the Ark of the Covenant. The ark was a box or like a chest and it contained the tablets of the law written with the finger of God. It contained a a jar or a, a container of manna and it had Aaron's rod that budded. And God said that I'm going to meet you in Exodus 25 verse 22. I will meet There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, this box was covered with a lid. And that lid is called the mercy seat. And it had two angelic figurines made of pure gold. It symbolized God's throne. And God said, that's the place. If you want to pinpoint it, that's the exact place where I will meet with you. And that's why the tabernacle was also called the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. If you think about it, why are we here? Well, to learn, to experience, but really in one sense, this is the tent of meeting. We came here to meet with God. Praise the Lord. And no one was permitted to enter the most holy place except the high priest. That would be Aaron, the brother of Moses, and then after him, his direct descendants. And a thick curtain separated the most holy place from the rest of the tabernacle. Only the high priest could go there, and only once a year, only one time during the year, during a most sacred ceremony called the Day of Atonement. And the high priest entered very cautiously Bringing blood. He could not go alone. He had to bring blood. And he sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat. The idea is this. When God looks down, he would see beneath him the tablets of the law, which reminds him how the Israelites sinned and broke his commandments. He would see the urn or the vase, the container filled with manna, which reminded him how he provided for them supernaturally, bread from heaven, and how they were ungrateful and how they complained continually. And Aaron's rod that budded reminded him of the time, if you read it in the book of Numbers, where there was a rebellion and the people rose up and said, no, 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 we're not going to follow, you know, this anymore. We're not going to follow God's authority anymore. We're going to do what we want to do. And they were instructed to all take out their rods or walking sticks, you know, and lay them before the tent of meeting and Aaron's rod blossomed and bloomed. And it showed them, no, this is the one I've chosen to be the priest. But it reminded God of their rebellion. But when the high priest sprinkled blood over that lid of the, of the ark, he had looked down and saw blood. And he realized the innocent has died on behalf of the guilty. 
A price has been paid to cover their sins. Ooh. Praise the Lord. Amen. The high priest entered very cautiously. Very cautiously. Jewish tradition says, it's not in the Bible, but it's Jewish tradition. That means I don't know whether it's true or not. It sounds true. Jewish tradition says that uh, the other priest would tie a, a rope around the ankle of the high priest. Because when he went beneath, beyond the veil into the glory, he could die. It was a very dangerous thing. He could die because the glory of God consumes sinfulness. And if he collapsed, they would have no way to retrieve his dead body since no one else can enter in there. So they would pull that rope to pull his dead body to the rest of the tabernacle. All of this tells us something, that sinful man cannot stand in the presence of God, that ordinary human beings cannot approach the throne of majesty. Hallelujah. And even the one who did so did very briefly and with extreme caution. But as Jesus died on the cross, the Bible tells us in Matthew 27 and verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's the curtain that separated the most holy place. We don't know the exact dimensions. I don't think anybody knows the exact dimensions of the veil of the temple. And, and by the way, this is now Herod's temple, which was a reconstruction of the temple, the second temple that Solomon's was destroyed. Some early tr Jewish traditions, again, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but maybe it's something to go by. It doesn't really matter. But some early Jewish traditions say the veil of the temple was 30 feet high and 60 feet wide and as thick as a man's hand. It certainly wasn't some little thin piece of cotton. Some, some Jewish writers said that even a team of horses could not pull it apart. So it was a very thick thing, whatever it was. But as Jesus gave up his spirit hanging from the cross, in the temple, that veil was torn in two. And Matthew makes it a point to say from top to bottom, not from bottom to top. If it was from bottom to top, that would mean some man in the earth tore it. But it happened in midair, up in heaven, uh, up in the air, I should say, 30 feet. Evidently, some angelic being just tore that thing wide open. Why? Because this was the end. This marks the end of the old dead system. It's now discarded. It's now replaced with a better one, a new and living one. And now the door to God's throne is flung wide open. Woo-hoo, glory to God. Now it's open. The door to heaven is wide open. Glory to God. That's why Hebrews 10, 19, writing to Christians says, therefore brothers, Brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Sinfulness prevented anyone but the high priest from entering the holy of holies, but by the blood of Jesus. Not only can any one of us approach God's presence, but we can come boldly. 
We can come confidently. We don't have to just come quickly and then somebody tie a rope around my ankle. No, we are supposed to come there and dwell there. We're supposed to reside there. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Not because of something that we have done, but because of what someone else has done for us. Glory to God. In verse 20, that was Hebrews 9. Chapter 10, verse 19. Now verse 20 says this, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. The New American Standard Bible says, which he inaugurated. Which he inaugurated. How interesting. You know, when a new building is to be inaugurated, very often, whether it's some uh, government building or some school or some civic center or library, museum, you know, whatever it may be, when some new building is to be inaugurated, typically, it just seems no matter what country you go to and throughout time, typically there's some kind of a ceremony to officially open it and make it available to the public. And it would be something like this, dignitaries would gather together and We've seen, you know, usually there might be a red ribbon across that front door. And at the, after some things are said and other things may be done, the chief guest, the guest of honor, would take a pair of scissors and maybe, you know, he would cut that ribbon. People would applaud. And then he would be the first one to walk through. And then everyone else, all the other dignitaries, all the other spectators, all the people, they would follow with him. And they would go inside and they would see, oh, this is what it is. You see, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he ascended up into heaven. And the angels gathered together on that day. And Jesus cut the red ribbon of his blood. And he entered into the very throne room of God. And now all of us are following with him, also going in a new and living way that he opened for us. Glory to God. And it says he made this opening through the curtain, in the curtain, that is, that is through his flesh. Through the curtain, well, that's the veil of the temple that we talked about. Then it says, that is to say, through his flesh. He was the tabernacle. He was the tabernacle of God. The spirit resided in him. And in the same way that the curtain was torn apart, his body was pierced. I'm sure you've read this before. In John chapter 19, verse 34, John tells us what happened on the cross but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. I've read that scripture many times, and I've seen different biblical commentators, and some of them are nothing more than common potatoes. Commentators say that this was that their impression is this is not a very remarkable thing. This is just, you know, typical, you know, anatomy. They say, well, the blood, he'd been dead, and the blood had coagulated, it's clotted and everything. And so what John thought was water was just, you know, like the white blood cells or, you know, whatever the, the fluids in the body are. And he just thought it was water, but he was mistaken. But I don't think so. 
I don't think so. When the, when the soldier stabbed Jesus' body, his side, he'd only been dead a short while, not 36 hours or something like that. In my opinion, it's just like John said. It was water. That's why John states so emphatically in the following verse, verse 35, that, that he saw this, that he was there, and he's not lying. He knows this is the truth. Water came out along with blood because God wanted us to know the blood not only pays for your sin, it washes away your sin. In the year A.D. 70, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and was never rebuilt. Even to this day, modern Jews celebrate Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, by fasting and prayer, but there are no sacrifices that they offer. There is no blood to sprinkle, and there are no priests because they are no longer needed. They don't know it, but even by their actions, they prove it's no longer needed. In Hebrews 10, 14, it says this, for by a single offering, how many? A single offering. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you read the book of Hebrews, it repeatedly uses the word once. Once. He entered into the holy place once for all time. He offered himself one time for all time. Once, once, once. Over and over and over again. And we know that after he ascended, he sat down at the Father's right down. He, he didn't just, you know, stroll around heaven. He sat down. Why? Well, you don't sit down till the job is done. By sitting down, it shows the work is finished. It is completed. Hallelujah. Glory to God. And Jesus was not only the tabernacle of God dwelling among men in his earthly ministry. Right now, he is our high priest in his heavenly ministry. He represents us at this very moment before the Father. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, it says this. Are you still here today? But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. If you go back and read the book of Leviticus, the high priest first would bathe. Then he would put on his priestly garments. He had to do this. On the Day of Atonement, Jesus was clothed with human flesh. And then he was baptized in water at the River Jordan to identify fully 
with humanity, even though John tried to prevent him. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest first offered a sacrifice for his own sins. Then the priest took two goats. One goat was for the Lord. It was offered, and the blood of that goat was sprinkled on the mercy seat. The other goat, the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 16, around verse 6, the other goat, it says, is for Azazel. That's the Hebrew, Azazel. It's often translated scapegoat, and even today the word scapegoat means the one we blame, the innocent one that we put all the blame on. But actually, Azazel, Azazel sorry, may not mean that at all. In fact, some people think the word Azazel means for the devil. And Aaron laid his hand on the goat, the Azazel goat, and he confessed all the sins of the nation of Israel on the head of that goat. And he didn't kill it. He took it and he walked into the wilderness and he released that goat into the wilderness, a barren, inhospitable land in which no one can survive. Jesus did not need to make an offering for himself because he was spotless. But God laid on him our iniquities. Isn't it interesting? On Passover, they offered a lamb, but here on the Day of Atonement, this is the day when they go into the Holy of Holies, they offered a goat. Just, but a goat is a symbol of rebellion and sin. And the Bible tells me in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He was cursed for us so that he would redeem us from the curse of the law. And the Bible makes it clear that when he died, he first did not ascend into heaven, but rather descended into the depths of the earth. Jesus himself said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He suffered there at the hands of the devil. He was the Azazel goat. But God raised him from the dead. But when he was raised from the dead, oh, it's so beautiful, he picked up his body, now glorified, and he stopped to have a conversation with a humble, earnest disciple, the king of the universe who's in the process of redeeming all mankind throughout history, takes a moment to stop and talk to this lowly, insignificant woman. She didn't recognize him at first, but when he called her name, she realized him, who it was. And so interesting, he said, don't touch me. Some translations say, don't hold me, but, but I, I, I do, in this case, like what the King James says, it says, don't touch me. Why not? Why can't I, can I shake your hand? Can I, you know... Don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So that means he's going, he's going now to the Father. I've not yet ascended to the Father. Well, you know, we know that after 40 days he ascended up, everybody saw him. But later, 
that same evening, he appeared to his disciples in the upper room. And when they didn't believe it, he said, handle me, touch me. So now they, he said to Thomas, eight days later, put your finger in the hole in my hand. Put your hand in the hole in my side. So now he's telling them, you can touch me. You can see that I'm not a ghost. I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a real person. But, but he told her, don't touch me. Why? I've not yet ascended to the Father. I believe he didn't want even to be tainted at all with a human touch. And he did not enter into Jerusalem into a temple that was made with human hands. He entered into heaven itself. And we read it earlier in verse 12. We read it earlier in Hebrews 9, verse 12. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, like the priests of the Old Testament, but by means of his own blood. Think about it. Even Jesus... Even Jesus could not enter into the heavenly holy of holies without blood. But it was his own blood. Think about that. And he did not sprinkle blood on a piece of furniture that men had made, which was a copy, which was a photo, which was a symbol. But there before the very throne of God, he sprinkled his own blood as our high priest. Let me read you another scripture. Hebrews again, but this time we were in chapter nine, jump down to verse 23. It's so interesting. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Let me read that again. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. This is amazing. Because you just got through telling us in this chapter 9, you just got through telling us that when Moses, when God made a covenant with the Israelites in Sinai, they shed blood. It's a blood covenant. And Moses took that blood and he sprinkled the book of the covenant. And then he sprinkled the people with blood. And the Bible tells us that he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle, on the furniture and all the utensils and the items in the tabernacle. And the Bible says that that almost all things are purified with blood under the old covenant. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And then this verse says, yes, it was necessary for the earthly tabernacle, which is a copy of heaven, to be purified with these sacrifices. But heaven itself was purified with better sacrifices. What can that mean? What does that mean? I can only interpret it this way. That man's sin was so terrible it even affected heaven. That Jesus came into heaven and he purified and sanctified it with his blood. You think about that. Glory to God. The blood of animals under the old covenant appeased God's sense of violated justice temporarily. 
But the blood of Jesus does not merely make a temporary payment for sins. It does not cover sin. It completely removes sin. His blood silences the voice of condemnation and it removes the stain of guilt. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. After they sprinkled blood at the inauguration of the tabernacle, then the glory fell. The manifested presence of God entered and filled that place. The Spirit always follows the blood. I said the Spirit follows the blood. If you want to experience more of God's presence, you need to develop great faith in the blood of Jesus. You need to apply by faith the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. I think we need to talk about the blood some more. I think we need to sing about the blood of Jesus some more. I think we need to make much of the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. Come on. Hallelujah. I'm on some, some, some modern churches and, 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 you know, I don't know. I'm not trying to be super critical, but like I guess they're trying to be seeker friendly. They almost never talk about the blood. Well, I think we need more than to be seeker friendly. I think we need to be spirit friendly. So that the Holy Ghost feels welcome. So the Holy Ghost says, yeah, I feel welcome in this place. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen. Again, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The tabernacle is also a type of heaven. And the high priests of old were a type, a foreshadowing of Christ's heavenly ministry. That's why the Bible says if he were still on earth, he would not be a priest. They're a priest according to the law that offer gifts and sacrifices based on the law. But he's he's not a priest on earth. He is in heaven. And he did not come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. And Moses said nothing about those from Judeans being priests. But he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Glory to God. From the time of Abraham. Glory to God. And just as the high priests of the old covenant represented the entire nation, one man, one man entered in on behalf of all men. So Christ now represents us before the Father. There is one man in heaven who represents you before the Father, Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm almost done. Let's flip back a little bit. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We must come to God on the basis of the blood and 
through the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. We do not approach the Father only, only, listen carefully, we do not approach the Father only because of who we are as believers, but also because of who Jesus is as our mediator. If you don't come to the Father through Jesus, you won't come to the Father. He said, I am the door, and he remains the only access point to the Father. And notice it says he's able to save us completely. The Greek word for save is sozo. And it doesn't exclusively or only mean forgiveness of sins. It does mean that. It does mean that. Of course it means that. But it also can mean more than that. It's a bigger word than that. Sozo can also mean heal. It's sometimes translated heal. James said, you know, the prayer of faith will save the sick. Other translations, most translations say heal the sick. It's talking about healing, but it's the same word, sozo. The word sozo also means to restore, deliver, protect, preserve, and make whole. So he's able. He's able to heal. He's able to, whatever you've lost, he's able to restore if you're fractured, he's able to make you whole. Hallelujah. If you're in trouble, he's able to protect you. If you're in need, he's able to provide for you. Whatever it is, he's able. He's able. And it says, to the uttermost. To the uttermost. That means completely. To the nth degree. Not just partial. Not an incomplete job. Completely. Totally. And the word uttermost can also mean now and forever. Forever, He did it yesterday, and he can do it today, and he can do it tomorrow. Hallelujah. He's able. And the word come. Again, let me read that verse. Consequently, verse 25, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Other translations say those who come to God through him. That word come, or it's translated draw near, is in the present tense, those who come. One translation says this, the CEB Bible says, those who are approaching God through him. If the word come, again it's translated draw near, if the word come was in the past tense, we might think this is only referring to the new birth. I came to him that day and I received eternal life and I became a child of God. And we would think that's what it means. I came that one time and that's it. But it's in the present tense. Because this is something that we continually do throughout our Christian life. He doesn't want you to come one time. He wants you to come every time. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And it says, it says, he ever lives to make intercession for us. He stands as our attorney at the bench. He presents our petition before the court. He approaches the throne to plead our cause. Does he act independently of us? Is this just something he's just doing, you know, apart from us, separate from us? No. He is only able to save those who draw near to God through him. Hallelujah. 
who draw near to God through him. Present tense, not just one time, present tense, ongoing. Several times, I believe six times, the book of Hebrews uses this expression, draw near. Having boldness, therefore, to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, it says, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near. The book of Hebrews is emphasizing our ability to access the very presence of God and not just there, but to go further. You're, you're here in the service because you came. You entered the door. But maybe you were sitting in the back and you decided, no, I want to be a little closer to the spout where the glory comes out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move my chair up a little higher. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come a little closer than I was. Maybe like if we were to pray or something, you might even say, no, I'm, I'm going I'm to come right to the very altar. I'm going to, I want to get as close as I can get. No offense to anybody. I realize people sometimes can't get the seat they want and maybe it's too loud for some people's ears up front. But I don't like to go to church myself and automatically just sit as far away as possible. I mean, maybe there's a valid reason for people to do that. They have to leave for some reason. I'm not trying to be critical. But, it's, but generally speaking, I just want to get as close to the action as possible. I want to get, I mean, if something's going to happen, I want to be a part of it. Amen? Well, that's just kind of a, a thing. But, but you know what? There's something, there's a spirit there. Like, I'm drawing near. I'm not satisfied with sitting in the balcony. Nobody's in the balcony today, so they shouldn't be offended. I'm not just satisfied hanging out. Some people just sort of hang out in the foyer, like, like, like they're not even really in the service. Just kind of hang out, you know, or wander around the parking lot. Like, are you here or are you not here? No, I think that, I think that indicates there's some kind of little issue that's going on. They don't really want to enter in. They, they want to tick the box. I went to church. I did. It, you know, I, I fulfilled my duty. Okay, I'm all clear and all in the clear right now. No, 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 no. We're not here to fill some kind of obligation. We're not here to please somebody else. We're here because we're hungry for God. And if you're not hungry for God, I don't think you should be here. Hallelujah. I said, if you're not hungry for God, I don't think you should be here. Come on, some, I'm not trying to be, you know, unkind, but sometimes I see people, and when I meet them, you know how it is for me. I just meet, you know, someone from our church just, you know, in the town. Of course, I don't go in the town very often, but my life is home and church. But anyways, once in a while, maybe, I might bump into somebody, and I say, oh, hi. And they don't say, oh, hi, back, or, you know, God bless you. They say, Last week, my children had a fever, and then the week before, my car broke down, and then the two weeks before that, we had to go to... They're already giving me all these excuses, you know, and then, and then they always end it by saying, but this week, I'm going to try my level best. I want to say, don't do me any favors. Don't do me any favors. Don't come to church to do me a favor. I don't need that favor. Come to church because you're hungry for God. You want more of God. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, you don't have to call the church and say, uh, who's preaching tonight? Uh, what is the topic? What songs are we going to sing? Do I know them? Listen, it doesn't matter. When, when you are hungry for God, when you have that desire, then I'm telling you, God can change the order of the service just for you. He can feed you. He can fill you. He can reach you. He can give you what you need. Listen, we could be talking about the apocalypse. We could be talking about the mark of the beast. Doesn't matter. God can heal you. If you come with the right attitude, he can change things in your life. Let us draw near. 
Let us draw near. It's, it's like he's saying, it's like he's saying, come on. Such a terrible price was paid. Such a, such a, it's so ghastly. You can't even imagine it. So the door could be open. And you barely want to put one foot in. Ooh, it's too hot. I'll just walk around the foyer. Come on. Jesus didn't go to the cross so that you could walk around the foyer of the temple. He did it so you could come to the throne of grace and come boldly. And come boldly. No more of this like, well, you know, here I am. Come with confidence. Come with confidence. Hallelujah. I know, you know, when we have first-time visitors, you know, they don't, they don't know what to expect. And, you know, I get that. And I'm not suggesting that this building is God's temple. God lives in you. He doesn't live in the building. But, but there's a point when we come together, we form a temple. The Bible says that. So first-time visitor, they're, you know, obviously they're not sure. They're kind of like, make sure it's nothing weird going on here. I heard they sacrifice chickens. <laughs> you know, all kinds of rumors and stuff. So they're not really sure. You know, they're not really comfortable. You know, even if we say, if you're visiting for the first time, raise your hand. We don't do that anymore because that makes people feel uncomfortable. If you're visiting for the first, you know, they would kind of like look around. Am I, am I the only visitor? You know, they're, they're, not, they're not comfortable. They don't, they don't really, they don't really, if we say, everybody say amen, they just kind of, don't ask me to do anything. But you see people who are here all the time. Like, I mean, like, you know, we don't even think they have a home. They live here. And so, you know, so they're just, they walk in. They just, just as happy as a lark. This is like, this is their natural habitat. This is just like, you know, this is just normal for them. That's how it should be for God's presence in our lives. We're not, we're not first-time visitors in the throne room. Hallelujah. Glory to God. We're not Mother's Day Christians. We're not Father's Day Christians. We're not Christmas Christians. This is home. We are home now. This is where we belong. And you know, when you act kind of standoffish, everybody else kind of looks at you funny and he looked at me funny. But when it's family, when it's home, it's like, yo, what's up? The angels aren't looking at you funny. I know what he did three years ago. No, 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 no. You're welcome. Hallelujah. He ever lives. He ever lives to make intercession for us. That means he will continue in this ministry forever. And this is what he lives for. What do you live for? Some people say, I live for my children. Well, that's a nice sentiment. Or some people say, I just live for my career. Or you know, I live for food, but he ever lives to make intercession for you. He ever lives. In heaven, he says, this is what I live for. This is what I live for. Hallelujah. Did you get anything today? I trust it helps you. Let me stand to our feet today. Praise the Lord.